welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Chris Clifford, our co-pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Growing up, my, uh, my family grew up, we grew up in central Virginia, right outside of Charlottesville. But my grandparents, both sets, lived far away. Now, I know that's a relative term because some of you, your, your extended family lives on the other side of the country. But for me, New York and Florida was a long ways away. And it was far enough away that we didn't go there often, maybe once a year, every once in a while, maybe twice, but, uh, but, but no more than that. And so whenever we would go, the house was unfamiliar. It, it, it was new. It was an adventure. There was a neighborhood to explore. I, my, my wife, she basically grew up right next to her grandparents. So it was like her second home. But for me, my grandparents' home were like this far off strange land where cool stuff existed and cool things could happen. Now, I guess you should know, uh, I was a kid with a huge imagination. In fact, I still have a huge imagination. I, I can get to daydreaming and lose hours at a time. I used to, as a kid, we lived kind of, you know, there was trees and lots of woods and a creek next to our house. And on a Saturday, it was no small thing for me to go out there and defeat a couple bad guys, save a couple people from the world, uh, go on some gnarly adventures through the woods, and, you know, basically change the world in a day. You know, because I would just be out there for hours hours and imagine all these things. A stick was a sword. A tree was a hideout. On and on and on. My mom used to get so frustrated with me when she would send me to my room for a timeout because she would send me there for five minutes and two hours later I would come out having had this grand adventure. She's like, I could never figure out how to punish you because every time I sent you to your room you had fun and she was very frustrated with it. So anyways, when I would go to my grandparents' house, they were full of things that were unfamiliar and new and different. My, my grandparents that lived in New York, they collected antiques. I mean, every antique, every yard sale they went to, every side road they saw something for sale, they would go. And a lot of it was worth money. Most of it was junk. But I mean, they had antique cans, antique signs. He had an antique gas pump, antique umbrellas, antique canes, antique swords. And his basement, their basement was kind of scary and creepy. So I'd get that sword out and I'd go down there and I'd be a musketeer, all for one and one for all, defeating the bad guys. But my favorite was his antique 1929 Buick, you know, like the old gangster looking cars from the 20s. And I'd be a straight up gangster rolling around Long Island, New York, you know, like Al Capone or something, just driving around for hours I could be in there. My grandparents in Florida, their house was much more formal, much more prim and proper. This was the grandma who put the plastic down on the couches when we would come to visit. You know what I'm talking about? Like, but I don't like these grandkids that much, and I know they're going to ruin something in this house. And that's kind of what it was. it was like. Everything in the house had its place. You couldn't really touch anything. But it was Florida. And so I would spend a lot of time outside. But every time we'd go, there would be a new story of something that happened in their neighborhood with an alligator. <laughs> and for like a young kid, this is like awesome. Like it ate a cat, it ate a dog, a kid almost got snatched, right? And so when I would go outside to play, I'd get a stick 
whittle a little point on it, and I'd become an alligator hunter or wrestler, right? I trolled the neighborhoods looking for an alligator. Thank God I never found one, right? Because I wouldn't have all the limbs that I have today. But I was determined that if I saw one, I was going to wrestle it, right? But, you know, it was a different day back then, you know, you know. Uh, but but it, was, it was just that's the way my brain worked. And I came inside one time from being out uh, trying to wrestle some alligators, catch some alligators. And I came inside and I was starving. And I walked up and I saw on the shelf this thing that I had seen before, but never like this. It was a bowl of assorted fruit, but it was the most beautiful fruit I had ever seen. And there was not there was not two of any kind. There was, there was one of almost any kind of fruit you could want. And so I went up to it, even fruits that were out of season. You know, it didn't make sense to an eight-year-old, but looking back. And I went up and my hunger was consuming me because alligator hunting is rough, right? I grabbed an apple and I was too young, I guess, to notice that something about this apple was different. And I reached up and I took a huge, huge bite of this apple only to discover that I was now chewing on wax and foam. Have you had this experience? Have you ever grabbed a piece of fake fruit that you thought was real? I, I've done it more than once. Maybe, maybe it's just me. <laughs> but chewing on those rubber grapes is actually kind of cathartic. Once they're in there, you're like, oh, it's kind of like gum, but not, right? Except you could die. But I mean... Uh, but uh, what's the point of fake fruit? I mean, if it's your decor of choice, I apologize for the next three minutes, okay? Because we all have our decor of choice, and I don't mean to offend you. You can come over our house and make fun of us. Lacey and I's decor of choice is the Marshall's clearance rack chic. So anything that's on sale at Marshall's or Home Goods, we take it and we try to make it work with everything else because we're not paying more than $10 for a painting or something like that, right? So you can come make fun of us next week, okay? But, but fruit, like I, I don't get the point of fake fruit. Like, is that decor? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, one of the primary, even the secondary or the tertiary purposes of fruit is not beauty, right? Like, I get fake flowers because... One of the, you could argue, one of the primary purposes of flowers is beauty, pollination and beauty, right? So I get the fake flower, it, it looks beautiful. Or even a fake plant, right? Plants, one of their primary purposes is beauty. So it makes sense that there would be a fake plant. But fruit, I mean, you go into your garden, you go, I'll plant flowers here, it'll make my house beautiful. You go into the side of the yard, we'll put a dogwood tree right here. It'll make this area beautiful. I've never heard anybody go say, you know what would look good right behind this water feature? A grapevine. That's what this needs, a grapevine right there. And if we put an apple tree over here, it would really accentuate the red siding of the house, right? Nobody, nobody does that, yet we somehow say, you know what would look good right here? A bowl of plastic that's painted like fruit. That would look really good. Now, again, if this, is, if this is your decor of choice, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, do, I do fake pumpkins, okay? I feel like that, that pumpkins are a fruit, right? They're not a vegetable. What are they? I should have thought about this before I threw this out there. <laughs> Fruits have seeds, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So pumpkins are, uh, we'll use this at the pot. Well, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, yeah, I do fake pumpkins. But other than that, I, I don't do fake fruit. You know, Jim and I were discussing the fruit of the Spirit. We wanted, to, we wanted to study and talk about the fruit of the Spirit. 
in Galatians 5 where Paul writes that love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He writes that those things are the fruit, the evidence of Christ's work in a person's life. They're the proof that the Holy Spirit is transforming that person. And Jim observed, and I guess he had seen some fake fruit recently or something. He observed that a lot of Christians, they buy into fake fruit. That is, they buy into a behavior or a signal that is of the world, of the culture, but they attempt to baptize it as evidence of following Jesus. These are ways of thinking or being that, that Christians adopt, so to speak, and have convinced themselves and trying to convince others that these are signals, evidence, proof that they follow Jesus. It's like a, a bowl of fake fruit. It attempts to say it's nutritious, that, it, that that person values fresh ingredients or health, but then you bite into it and it's nothing. It's none of those things. And if we really want to follow Jesus, we have to get rid of fake fruit. We have to cultivate the real thing because we're going to say this over and over in this series over the next couple of weeks, looking good is not good enough. In Galatians chapter 5, 22, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you'll be familiar with this passage. And Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Paul gives this list to the church in Galatia as a way of saying this, these things, this fruit is the evidence that you follow Jesus. If you say you follow Jesus, this fruit should exist. It, it, it is, Paul saying, this is proof that the Holy Spirit is transforming you. It, it's the testimony of your sanctification. It's the data by which you can draw a conclusion. It is the evidence of a transformed life in Christ. But here's the thing. These fruits are difficult to cultivate. These are not simple things to do. And I think you'll discover in the weeks to come that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't happen by accident. It requires intention. You know, you don't, you don't just plant a seed, throw a seed out, and hope that it grows. Well, that's how I garden, right? I seed and I plead. I seed and I plead, right? But if you, want, if you want to grow something for real, right, it requires care and tenderness and watering and fertilizing and loving like a small child. The problem is I ain't got time for that because I got a three-year-old. When you turn the light off, he starts screaming, right? So I don't have time to care for a little tomato plant. Maybe one day, maybe one day, right? But it requires work. It requires intention. Cultivating the fruit of the Spirit takes more than just osmosis. 
seats. Too many Christians think that sitting in a church that somehow the, the fruit of the Spirit might permeate who they are and transform them more into the likeness of the Christ. I don't mean to undervalue that we come to church And I don't mean to say that God can't transform our lives if all we do is to enter this place and say, God, change us. Or even don't say that. Sometimes, without us even knowing it or desiring it, God moves in our life. But if you want to move from that to the fruit of the Spirit, it's going to require the same tender care and intention that any plant or any fruit or any vegetable garden would. And for all those reasons... That's why fake fruit is so appealing. You can appear like a follower of Christ without the hard work. You can can act like or you can signal to the world around you by adopting some behavior that's already natural to you or that is already natural to the culture. Instead of the hard work of cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, I just baptize the things that that I receive from the world and the culture around me And I make that a marker of who I am in Christ. Does that make sense? But fruit of the Spirit, that takes work. You know, there's a relatively new term in our vocabulary, in our cultural vocabulary, that kind of um, illustrates or helps explain this idea of fake fruit. And the term is virtue signaling or value signaling, right? It's, it's, it's relatively new, though some, some people say it first appeared in about 2004, but it really took off in the 2010s when social media became, be, became the dominant way that, that um, the culture and communities communicated. Virtue signaling, according to Cambridge Dictionary, is an attempt to show other people that you're a good person, for example, by expressing opinions that will be acceptable to them, especially on social media indicating that one has virtue merely by expressing disgust or favor for a certain political idea or cultural happening. You understand this, right? You, you see this, you know what I'm talking about. Virtue signaling, is, it, it's saying because I like the right things, because I support, because I share, because I'm vocal about the right things, that makes me what I think is a good person. Right? This is what our culture does. Or if I don't like the wrong things, if I'm against certain things, that makes me that person. There's no action required. There's just this signaling, this saying that this is what I'm for, this is what I'm against, and everything changes. This might be a new term, but this is an old behavior, right? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Don't signal, essentially, to others that you're righteous. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Jesus is calling those who are listening and us who read his words today, calls us out for attempting to signal to people around us that we're good people with certain behaviors or attitudes or mindsets or whatever. We can't just virtue signal our way into being a follower of Jesus. 
The virtue signaling behavior is actually the impetus for Paul writing this letter to the church in Galatia. Paul is frustrated with the Galatians. They've bought into this value signaling gospel. And here's the background for this letter before we jump in, because we're going to spend the next couple weeks kind of jumping in and out of Galatians, especially Galatians 5. And you need to know some of the background of this letter. Remember when Christianity started in the first century, it was not its own religion. You understand that, right? Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. It was a movement within Judaism. There were Jesus-following Jews, and there were non-Jesus-following Jews. In fact, it wasn't uncommon in that day to have multiple movements within Judaism. You have Zealots and Essenes and Sadducees, and you have all kinds of different beliefs and and priorities. And Christianity, or Jesus-following Judaism, was just another movement in, in the umbrella of Judaism. It wasn't uncommon for there to be a movement. And it wasn't uncommon for Gentiles to want to be a part of that movement. What was uncommon was the rate at which Gentiles were converting to Judaism at this point. They're coming now in droves, in flocks. And prior to this, kind of the setup was when you converted to Judaism you adhered strictly to the same laws that the Jews did, namely the Torah. And three of the big ones that would have been the most difficult for any Gentile would have been circumcision, kosher laws, food laws, and Sabbath laws. And, but again, Gentiles had converted into Judaism before. And what's different now is the rate at which they're converting. And along comes Paul, who's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he essentially says, listen, Christ fulfilled. He satisfied the law. We're free. We no longer have to adhere strictly to those laws. And so you can be A Jesus-following Jew, not a Christian, a Jesus-following Jew without these ethnic markers, without these cultural defining markers. And this gets Paul in a ton of hot water, right? Anytime you read that Paul's being persecuted or beaten, it's probably by those Jews who believe that he was crossing a line here. Read the book of Acts, and you see that he gets into a big kerfuffle with the original, the OG disciples, right? They're, They're not on board with this. They come around. But he gets beat up over this. But he insists that this is the gospel of Christ. So here's what happens. He plants this church in Galatia. And they have this gospel, this freedom gospel in Christ. And lots of Gentiles are coming to become Jesus-following Jews. Like Paul does, he plants a church and at some point he leaves. But he maintains a relationship with that church from a distance. And when he left, Judaizers came in. Judaizers would have been Jesus-following Jews who believed that you had to adhere to the laws, namely circumcision, kosher food laws, and the Sabbath. And they come in behind Paul and start preaching this gospel. And the people start buying into it. Now, can you imagine? Like, Paul said you're free, and then these other people come, and you're still new to the faith, and now, if you're a 35-year-old man, you got to get circumcised. I mean, what? 
Like, I didn't sign up for this, right? Much less the kosher laws and the Sabbath laws. Paul catches wind of this, and this is the impetus for him writing this letter to the church in Galatia. And he starts railing and ripping on this whole thing. He said in chapter one, he calls them out for embracing and turning to an entirely different gospel. He, he talks about the freedom in Christ. In chapter three, he talks about Abraham was made right with God long before the Torah, long before the law came along. Circumcision came a long ways after him being made right by faith with God. And in chapter 5 is kind of when he makes this final case. You want want signals that tell people that you follow Jesus? You want markers that tell people you follow Jesus? You want evidence? You want proof that you're a follower of Jesus? Here it is. Here's the fruit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. There's no badge, there's no behavior that, can, or that you can perform that signals or makes you right with God. Or in other words, looking good is not good enough. It's the fruit that matters, not the virtues or the values that you signal. And so that leads us to the first fruit, which we'll talk about this morning. In Galatians 5.22, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now let's do a quick, 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 quick review because we can't, uh, a lot of you know um, the Greek word for love here, but a lot of you might not. So let's do a quick review for love. In the English language, we have one word for love and it is love. So you can love pizza and you can love your mom, right? You can love your dog and you can love your kid. And there's only way that you can differentiate the nuance of that is if, if you know the person or you know the situation. But we use love for everything. And it really does a disservice to what we're trying to express. You know, if I, if I, you know, if I stand up here and I just say, you know, I love apples. And then after service, I come up to you and I say, I love you. Like, isn't that a disservice? Like, it doesn't fully communicate to you that you're not an apple. All right? You're like, okay, well, my apple, pumpkin, he's got a thing for pumpkin, so maybe it's that, right? I mean, maybe I'm above that. Like, we don't have a lot of room in our word choice for other types of love, but in Greek, you have multiple words to express the different kinds of love. I think there's eight in total, but some of the ones you probably heard before are eros, that's romantic or passionate love. You got philia, which is affectionate or brotherly love, often referred to. Storge, which is like familial love. That's a family love. That's a little bit different than, than a philia or a friend or a brotherly love. And then the one that we often talk about the most in church is agape. Agape is this selfless love. It's the highest form of love. It's a universal love. It's, a, it's the love of God. Now, we, we could spend an entire sermon, an entire sermon series, trying to parse out what is agape and what does it mean. But that's not our intention here. And so let me, I, I tried to put a quick definition together as opposed to having 17 different ways to describe it. This is my definition. It's not going to get published anywhere. You can disagree if you don't like it, but I think it captures a lot of the power of what agape is. Agape is a love of choice. 
That means I love you not because I'm related to you, not because I'm in the same group as you, in the same neighborhood. It is a choice I made to love you. Agape is a love of choice that is not concerned with self. Agape is a selfless love. It's a giving love. It's where I am giving of myself. It costs me something to love you. And it strives for another's best. So not only is my love selfless, but it intends to do the best for you. What I do or how I act in the relationship is not for my benefit. It's for yours. And is best demonstrated through action. I think that's the most powerful thing. You can say you love a lot of things. Agape requires demonstration of that love. Agape requires movement. Agape is the word Jesus uses when he says, no greater love has no one than this than they lay down their life for a friend. That's a powerful love, right? You can see that that's different from loving pizza or apples. They're like, hey, I love you, bro, right? But I, I agape you. I lay my life down for you. But even that, when we say it like that, to lay my life down for a friend, even that's a little easy, right? Like, I'll lay my life down for people I like, for people who are like me, for people who are related to me, for people who are in my circle or in my sphere. But you know where else Jesus uses the word agape? I'm so sorry. Matthew 5, He says, but I tell you, agape, love your enemies and pray for you, those who persecute you. That's agape. They annoy you. You'd hate them. They do harm to you. They make fun of you. They persecute you. They attempt to ruin you. And Jesus says, guess what? Agape them. Love them. It's completely counter-cultural. If we have that type of love, imagine if, if we just said today, forget the rest of the fruit. Let's just as a church focus on agape. And we determined that we would be the people who agape those who hate us, those who annoy us, those we dislike or who dislike us or intend harm for us. If we just focused on that, how radical and countercultural would that be in our culture today? People wouldn't get it. They would think we were on drugs. It wouldn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. That's agape. And if that's what the real fruit looks like, then your question should be, what's the fake fruit? What's the... What's the thing, the signal, the behavior, the mindset that Christians have adopted and it attempts to value signal love? Well, there's a button that radically changed our culture and our world. It came out about 2010. One button shifted everything for us. Does anybody know what it is? The like button. Christopher Zara, in an article on Fast Company, said, Likes on Facebook and other social networks live at the center of clout and commerce. They tell us what to pay attention to, where to spend our money, and who to publicly shame. They amplify our outrage, drown out our dissent, corrode and, he- and corrode healthy discourse. And they become influential to the point where it's almost impossible to imagine the online world without them. 
the like button radically altered social media. Facebook was on the rise for sure. But you could argue that what got them in the game and what propelled them to the top was the like button. It, it, it reprogrammed how the whole thing worked. It changed how you were marketed to, how you were advertised at. It changed how, people, how companies could track you. And for the purpose of our conversation today, it reprogrammed how we think and interact with one another. Other social media brands quickly followed. They added a heart button or a plus button. That was Google Plus. Anybody remember that? Uh, no. And then after that came the dislike button, and that, that had some issues, so they got rid of that on certain platforms, right? Then the share button, and then emoji reactions. All of it reprogramming us to believe that what we like defines us. That what we support, what we share, what we comment about determines if we are good people or if we are on the right side. And almost as quickly as that happened came the culture rage, the outrage culture right behind it. And to juxtapose with the like culture, it quickly became what you dislike, what you're against, what you rage against, what you're outraged by and share to the world. That defines if you're a good person or on the right side. And now it becomes this weird thing where it's not what I do with my life that makes me good or bad. It's what I like. It's what I support. It's what I share. Trolling someone somehow becomes this act of social justice. It becomes a good use of time. And this doesn't just affect people who have social media. I hear some of you saying, well, that's why I don't get on social media. Well, unfortunately for you, it reprogrammed the whole society, whether you're on social media or not. It doesn't matter then who I am. You don't need to get to know me or see my real life decisions or actions. You just need to know what I like and what I dislike, what I'm for and against. And you can think you can make a valid judgment on who I am. And here's the saddest news. Christians bought into this all the way. We copied the behavior. It became a value signaling for love. No longer do I have to love people who are different than me. I just have to like the right thing. In fact, I don't have to love the people who I disagree with. I can actually troll them. I can hate them. I can outrage against them. I can comment mean things, whether online, on the news, in person. And all of a sudden, this bizarre behavior is something that Christians use to value, to, to use as evidence that they follow Jesus. I don't have to do the hard work of love. If I support the right thing, then great, I'm a Christian. Or worse, if I'm not against the right things or the wrong things, then that would make me a Christian. Some Christians operate like Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you trollers of men. <laughs> what? Where, where did you get that? It was follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 
You'll bring people along. You'll love them. You'll bring them into community. You'll do life with them. You'll transform who they are by loving them. How did the religion whose Savior said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, come to a place where they define themselves, they signal to each other and others that they're loving by just liking or disliking. Now this, don't, don't overreact. This doesn't mean we can't have strong opinions. This doesn't mean about what's right and wrong. It doesn't mean we can't vote our conscience. It just simply means that liking and disliking, supporting, not supporting, is not fruit of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not the marker that makes you a follower of Jesus. Agape is hard. And if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to transform life, then it's dang near impossible to agape without the power of the Spirit at work in your life. Agape is impossible without the work of the Spirit in our lives. You can't force agape. You can't fake agape. You can't uh, make yourself do agape. The Holy Spirit has to be at work in your life. Look at what Paul says about the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 16, he says, So I walk by the Spirit. 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit. 5.25, since we live by the Spirit. And also in 5.25, keep in step with the Spirit. In the book of Galatians, Paul lays out the gospel and the law. And he says, you can't fulfill the law on your own. You can't do it. That, that's the bad side of the law. That, so stop trying to fulfill the law. You're never going to accomplish it. And then you know what he says in Galatians 5, 14? Like, come on, Paul. He says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You catch this? Paul spends the entire book saying, you can't accomplish the law. And then what does he say the law is? Loving your, your neighbor. Paul, what you, come on, man. Are you saying I can't love my neighbor? Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to love your neighbor, if you want to agape, it's going to take the work of the Spirit in your life. Essentially, the whole law is love your neighbor. Agape your neighbor. And so, well, how does Paul think this is possible? He says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Some of you, this could be your takeaway for the entire day. Christ lives in you, transforms you, and cultivates that fruit alongside it, partners with you to cultivate that fruit. Paul is saying, if you want this fruit, this fruit of love, it's going to require the Spirit at work in your life. Part of following Jesus is cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's living into the fact that Christ lives in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. This is why, uh, you'll hear me talk about this a lot, spiritual disciplines are so key to following Jesus. You have to create space in your life for the Holy Spirit to transform you. You have to set aside time. You got to create margin for you to sit in silence, for you to sit in prayer, for you to fast, for you to do things that are hard so that through that work, the Holy Spirit transforms you. Now, I don't know if Paul has a favorite when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. 
I'm not going to try to argue that he puts them in some hierarchical order or priority order. But I'm pretty sure that he intended to put love first. I don't know about the rest. But there's no doubt in my mind that love Paul considers the most important. I mean, read the rest of Galatians 5. Read 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, love to Paul is everything. Agape is everything. You got to get love right or, or the rest of the fruits don't follow. It's like this. You ever go to the store and someone, a roommate, told you to go get milk or a spouse, told you to, or mom or dad, somebody, sibling, said, we need milk. Go get milk, right? And you go to the store and you get a lot of stuff. And you get home and what don't you have? Milk. You had one goal, one job. What was it? Milk, right? You can go and you can get other stuff while you're there, but you got to get them. When I go to Costco, I go to Costco for milk. I come home with an air fryer. Like, <laughs> I got a new set of knives. Lisa's like, we needed milk. I was like, but these knives. <laughs> She's like, but the milk. I was like, but the knives, right? I mean, so you can get the air fryer. You can get the cheese, not the air fryer, right? You, you can go get all the other stuff. That's fine. But you better come home with the milk. I think it's the same way with the fruit of the Spirit. You, you can pick up joy. You can pick up peace. You can pick up forbearance. You can pick up self-control. But if you don't cultivate love, don't come home yet. Don't, don't bring those groceries home. Stop by another store on the way. Go to CVS. It's going to be twice as much, but you're still going to come home with milk, right? You better come home with milk. I think the way that Paul sets up the order and the way that Paul speaks about love in this chapter and throughout all of his writings, I think it's clear that agape is the key that unlocks the rest of the fruit. In fact, Jesus said that the whole law was summed up in this. Agape God and agape your neighbor. Paul, because he's an overachiever, made it even harder. He says the whole law is summed up in Loving your neighbor. I mean, I had a chance of getting at least a 50% on the exam, right? Because I can love God. That, you know, nobody can say that you don't love God, right? Oh, I love God. Of course I love God. But people, people, that you can tell if I love people, if I love my neighbor. Paul essentially says, even the love God part, if you really love God, you love your neighbor. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians he juxtaposes love to all these amazing other virtue signaling, value signaling, beautiful spiritual gift things. And listen, listen to what he says about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and I can fathom all ministries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am, say it, Nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor or give my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain what? Now, listen, church, I can promise you this. If I bring, if I bring Aaron up here and Aaron starts talking in angel languages, heavenly languages, what are you guys going to do? You're going to say, that dude, he's a Christian. He loved Jesus, right? And, and if, I, if I bring Amy up here and she starts 
spouting off prophecy. And she understands all the mysteries of the world, all the things nobody understands. And she's speaking about the future. And it comes to be, what are you guys going to do? You're going to give her a Christian badge. We don't have badges like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but you're going to give her one, right? You're going to be Amy Christian. She, she knows Jesus, right? And, and if, I, if I bring Kristen up here and Kristen tells you how she has just given away everything to the poor. Everything. You know what y'all are going to do? You're going to be like, oh my gosh, she's a saint, right? We're going to put a picture on the wall, Saint Kristen. <laughs> you like it? These things, these are values and virtues that signal to us that this person follows Jesus. But what does Paul say? That if you don't have what, those things are nothing. Love. I mean, how does he do that? I, I can promise you I value those things more than I value love sometimes. But to Paul, he says, it's nothing. You can do any of those things, but if you don't get love right, if you don't understand agape, if that's not fruit in your life, then, th then you're not following Jesus. Then the Holy Spirit's not transforming who you are. It is nothing. To Paul, it's agape, it's agape, it's agape. I've taken a lot of teenagers on overseas trips. There are a lot of things that are petrifying about that experience. You can only imagine, right? I mean, losing one, coming home with an extra. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> they've tried. Getting sick, especially in a country where the health care system's uh, pretty underdeveloped and under-resourced. Violence. I mean, we've gone, we went to Haiti quite a few times before it got out of control. And, you know, I mean, we had kidnapping insurance. Like, I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't that dangerous, but it felt it, you know, and you're like, little Susie starts walking off from the group. He's like, get back. Right. A lot of things are petrifying. You know, the most petrifying thing about taking students, teenagers on mission trips, it's handing them their passport and trusting them to get from the ticket gate to the other side of customs with that passport in hand. <laughs> uh, am I right? I am so right. I mean, there's nothing that scares me more than handing them this golden ticket, this thing that determines whether they're ever coming back home <laughs> and letting them hold it. They can't track their phone. They can't track their headphones. They can't track, you know, I mean, you know, some can, but not, you know, there's some that can't, right? So I give speeches. I threaten them with an inch of their lives. I do pat random passport checks to kids I know we're going to lose. I'm like, hey, where's your passport? Where's your passport? Right? I make copies of it. But you know the one thing I say about 10 times before we get on the plane? Do not put the passport in the seat back pocket on the seat in front of you. So we get off the plane. We're in Haiti. Walking towards the custom gates. About to walk through the door that once you go through, you cannot go back through. And someone says, I don't have my passport passport. So me being the very compassionate, loving youth pastor I was, said, are you kidding me? Where is it? You know where it was. He said, I put it in the, I was like, if you say the seat back, they're going to take me to jail. Sure enough, he did. We ran back to the, the ticket counter. 
begging the person who speaks very little English to let us back on the plane because this kid is about to be, you know, citizenless, right? He's got no country now. He's in between two countries and there's nowhere he can go. He's stuck and he has no idea the headache that he's about to cause me, right? Thank God after very, very bad Creole, they let me back on the plane, let him back on the plane. He grabbed the passport and he makes it out. But it occurred to me, you know what they don't? They don't care that he had an American flag on his shirt. They're not, that doesn't make him a U.S. citizen, right? They don't care that he has an American accent. They don't care that he has American friends. They, they don't care about anything. What is it that tells them and his country that he's an American citizen? His passport. Agape is the passport Jesus establishes as evidence of kingdom citizenship. You can have a Christian t-shirt. You can have some cool Christian behaviors. You can know the Christian lingo, right? That's all cool. Lots of things that can signal that you're, you're a Christian, that you follow Jesus. But you want to know the only thing that determines the first piece of evidence Jesus says he needs. What is it? Love. Agape. Jesus in John 13, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath anyone than they lay down their love for, oh, excuse me, by this everyone will know you are my disciples. Everyone will know you follow Jesus if you love one another, agape one another. John 15, read the whole chapter later today. We don't have time to do the whole thing today, but he's talking about fruit. It's a great kind of companion to this, this series and this sermon today. But he said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than lay down a life for one's friends. You are no longer, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go so that you might bear fruit. Fruit that will last in my name. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command. Love each other. It's an incredibly sad story of a person who decided to leave a church. And they told the pastor, true story, told the pastor, I'm leaving. And the pastor said, why? They said, there's this person in our congregation who I just disagree with. Okay. I don't like their politics. I don't like how they act. I don't like how they talk. And the pastor said, one person? One person. Nod their head. So, so you're, gonna, you're leaving because of this one person. One person. And the pastor said, what if God put that person there? to teach you how to love? What if God's intention with sitting that person next to you was that you would learn how to agape? You know, I think probably the saddest part of the liking, disliking, outrage culture is that we cancel people that God puts in our life that God intended for us to learn how to agape. But we said, no, I'm going to cancel them. I'm going to dislike them and be outraged. And somehow we think that, that, that makes us a follower of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. There's situations in which 
we have to get people out of our life. It can be toxic, abusive, but I'm not talking about that. You know I'm not talking about that. What if there are people in your life that God wants you to put there to teach you how to agape? Church, let, let I mean, Jim's going to preach some awesome sermons coming up. I'm telling you, love's the best one, okay? <laughs> if you don't get this one, you ain't getting the rest. <laughs> so let me implore you, let me encourage you. Let's be people who cultivate agape. Let's be people who get this one right, who determine to be agape people. Let's pray. Oh God, I wish, I wish you made it easier to follow you. I wish it was as easy as liking or disliking something. But instead you call us to agape. Instead you call us to love a selfless love, a love of choice, a love that demands action. And sometimes that even means to people we don't like, we disagree with, and to people who intend harm or dislike towards us. God, cultivate in us agape. Perhaps there's no more countercultural way to show the evidence of transformation in our life than to be people of agape. Lead us in that way, we ask. Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Columbia, I like apples, but I love you. <laughs> you remember that you're all new, all in, and all out. And you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington World. Have an awesome week. We'll see you back. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.